Welcome. Thank you for listening to Spiritual Living with author and teacher Francois Feinberg. May the message you're about to hear earnestly touch your heart, and may it encourage you in your ongoing love of God the Father, your enjoyment of the Lord Jesus Christ, and your fellowship in both the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ. In John chapter 2, there is the account of Jesus in Jerusalem and many who came to believe in him. But it says that he, even though they believed in him, he did not entrust himself to them because he knew all men and he knew what was within a man. Christ saw their motivation. He saw that within them there was something a little bit off, a little bit manipulative, something that was not really for intimacy with Christ, not really to know him as he is, but there was an ambition and a self-seeking within those believers in the Lord did not give himself further to them. In a way, he withheld himself from them. And here is the issue today. From God's perspective, you are welcomed. You've been sought out. And through Christ and through the Spirit, the way has been made possible to love God, to know God, to walk with God. But the issue today is this. Now that the door is open, what is your motivation for loving God? What are you hoping to get from God? What agenda, what ambition is lurking within you in the knowing of God? Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27 says that the spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord and the Lord searches the inner most parts of a man's being. What a marvelous picture of the inner condition of a man. It shines, and it's going to either shine a pure motivation, or it's going to shine a selfish ambition, a manipulation, a, a, a kind of a self-absorbed, egocentric pursuit with God. Today's message took place out in the countryside on a lake with a couple of my sons and my daughters in the Lord. You will hear in the background a lot of geese constantly echoing perhaps even their approval of what was being spoken. Bear in mind we are outside around a lake Um, Perhaps even like Francis of Assisi, who taught in creation, I wanted to not sit inside of a building or stand behind a kind of a podium. And so I sat down at a table in the open and visited with my sons and daughters, my friends, my family in Jesus. I hope this message encourages you as I talk about this issue of your inner man 
and your inner motivation before God. And again, please bear with the geese. It is God's desire to give us the keys to the kingdom. It's his desire to reveal himself. It is God's desire to be known. And he invites us into this. He gives us the eternal life so that we can know God. We can know the Son. So thank you, Lord, for this invitation. Thank you, Lord. You know, I, I firmly believe God does not want to play hide-and-seek with us. Although God is invisible and unsearchable, and God is wonderful and glorious and magnificent, and we use these big words, amen. I believe there's also a part in God that's just so relatable, so understandable, so knowable, so comprehensible. We get into trouble when we want to know what God knows, but as long as you just want to know God, um, He's just so happy to reveal Himself. So we talked about that, that there's a divine invitation. You're welcome. But it's on God's terms, of course. You know, God's terms is simply this. He will reveal himself when you are in a meek, tender, humble posture before him and you can learn from him. And he would love to make himself known. He's not going to excessively make it hard on you. But you have to knock a little bit and uh, you have to ask and you have to seek a little bit. You know, God, it is his glory to hide things. And it is your glory to search it out. God wants you to search it out. But I've experienced the Lord in a way where you take a step towards God, He runs a mile towards you. Amen. Amen. Come on. That's just the way God is. Hey, but uh, now I want to talk to you. You, the one that knocks on the door. You that cry out. You know, you that call out, Lord, I need you. I want to know you. Show yourself, God. Reveal in this situation. Show me in the Bible. I want to talk from your perspective, knowing God. So the foregoing hours, we've talked a little bit from God's perspective, you know. He's the one that gives revelation. He's the one that gives insight. The Spirit reveals things to us and leads us into truth, and He manifests Himself. So God has His responsibility in the knowing process. But what is your responsibility? Your motive. Oh, glory. What is your attitude when you come to God? This is the issue. And if your attitude is on, correct, proper, God will become known to you so easily. But if your attitude is just even a little off, God's going to hide himself, block himself, and say, "Uh uh-uh, no interaction with this person. What's that attitude? What's that motive? Let's address that in our time together. But first, let's look at the scriptural basis for what I want to talk about. And uh, just turn to John's Gospel, chapter 2. We're in Jerusalem early on in Jesus' ministry, verse 12. And after this, after he changed the water into wine, he went down to Capernaum. And uh, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, the whole gang, and they remained there not many days. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. What do we celebrate at Passover? It's highly significant. We celebrate the deliverance from Egypt. 
You remember that? Mm-hmm. In our hand signs? Mm-hmm. You know, bondage, Moses, let my people go, no Passover. We're coming out of bondage. We're free people. So it's the time to celebrate freedom again. It's the time to celebrate deliverance. You understand the context? And he found in the temple those selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers sitting there. Um, We should be celebrating and instead we're having commerce. Jesus gets ticked. (laughs) And having made a whip out of cords... I'm not sure where he got these cords. But uh, maybe it was attached to an animal. And he just cut this cord and he goes and he takes that cord. And I'm not sure where he gets these cords. But he sits right there in the middle of the temple and they, he starts weaving a whip. Everybody comes and like, hey, what are you doing? It's a cleansing device. That looks like a whip to me. <laughs> It's a purification device. (laughs) This is a new thing in Judaism. We've not heard of such a thing. You know, we get purified going to baptism. Um, He's just smiling. But he's like shaking with anger. And he just keeps weaving this whip. Maybe sat there an hour, two hours. But anyway, in just a minute, he is livid. Everybody's like, this is curious art here in the middle of the temple. This is interesting. So having made a whip out of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. I just see potentially a madman running around, infuriated, whoosh, whoosh, and screaming and just acting like a wild man maybe. I'm, I'm not sure he walked around like, get, get going, going, whoosh, get going. Would y'all please leave? Whoosh. Now it says he drove them all out of the temple as well as the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the money of the money changers and overturned their tables. It must have been a scene. I can only imagine what this must have looked like when Jesus came in and destroyed everything. I can only... So it's a time of celebration. It's a time of deliverance and... Oh, man. People are being uh, taken advantage of financially. and It's a business. It's an industry. You see the picture? And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away from here. And do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Verse 17, And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of the Father's house shall devour me. Then the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us seeing that you do these things? You just acted like a looney tune, like a revolutionary, like a reformer, like Judas Maccabees. You're cleansing the temple. You're declaring what we're doing unrighteous and prove it to us. Show yourself. 
Anybody can overturn tables, but we need a little bit more pizzazz, a little bit more spice to your ministry. Anybody can point a finger and say, this is wrong, that is wrong, this is not up to the standard. We need a little more from you. Jesus answered and said to them, Okay, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it back up. The Jews said, This temple was built in 46 years, and you will rebuild it in three days? I love Jesus. He's intentionally vague. He never speaks to the natural man. He always speaks to the spirit. Of course, they have no spiritual comprehension. No idea that he will be crucified, buried, and resurrected in three days. So they see with a natural eye. They hear with a natural ear. So this seems to be the most absurd thing ever. But he spoke of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Okay, is everybody with me so far? So context is very important because verse 23, 24, and 25 is what I want to get at. So again, we have a confrontation in the temple. We have a man full of zeal, and he seems to come across as a revolutionary, somebody that can put things right. Now, all of us living in Jerusalem, we watch this event unfold right in front of us, and we go... Finally, somebody standing up to all the hypocrisy. Finally, somebody having courage to, to, to uh, challenge the, the status quo of religion. Finally, somebody that sees we're, we're merchandising. And finally, somebody has the zeal to, to confront. All of a sudden, all of us are very attracted to this revolutionary. And here it is, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem... At that Passover, where we're celebrating deliverance, it says, During that feast, many believed into His name when they saw the signs which He did. You and I are living in Jerusalem. We are desperate for change. I would love for the sacrifice system to stop because half of my income goes to Rome. The other half I have to buy animals to sacrifice and the priests are getting wealthy at the temple. It's like I'm paying to Rome and I'm paying to God and in the end my kids are starving to death. I'm, I'm ready for a revolution myself. I just don't have the courage, like Martin Luther, for instance, to confront the system, to speak up because... Who am I compared to all the priests in Jerusalem? So finally, somebody shows up that has courage, overturns the table. Somebody just confronts the whole situation. Oh, man, just like we were delivered from Egypt, maybe we're on the brink of being delivered from Rome and from Judaism. I can just imagine the people just, oh, finally, a revolutionary a Messiah. And Jesus goes and He does maybe a few healings here and a few things there. We know that in the coming chapters here in John, He did a healing of a blind man. And people are seeing all of this and like, man, I'm casting my vote with that man. 
I'm going to support his cause, his movement. Anything wrong with that? Not really. But notice verse 24 and 25. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. Put yourself in Jesus' shoes. People are ready to support your cause. People are so in need of revolution and change. And you come and you do a few signs and wonders. You turn over tables and people are just ready to follow you. And he's like, seeing the crowds, masses, all these people forsaking everything. They're ready to walk with him. And he says, you know what? I don't want you guys around me. He rejects them inasmuch as Nazareth rejected him when he was up there. He comes to the temple. He does quite a few spectacular things. People are ready to support his cause, and he says, I will have none of this. And he looks people in the eye, and he says, I will not give myself to you, to you, to you, to you, because your motive is wrong. It says here in verse 25, And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew that they wanted to be free from Rome. He knew that they wanted to be free from the practices of Judaism and all the exorbitant money they had to pay, temple tax and sacrifices and he could sense in these people, they didn't have a need to know Him. They had a need for the issues of life to be delivered from that. And it's not like God doesn't want to deliver us from the issues of life, but it's as though He wants us to be connected to Him more than we love our father, our mother, or need deliverance from Rome, or deliverance from Judaism. It's as though... He's looking and he knows they're testifying of him in the flesh. Hey, everybody, come. We met a revolutionary. Here's a guy that's going to transform everything. He's doing signs and wonders. Come on. And they're testifying. They are gathering and starting a movement. And he goes and says, you know what? I don't need you to advance my cause. I know it's in your heart. You're not really for me as a person. You're just for me as a miracle worker. You're for me as a revolutionary. Do you all see that? And right there he says, you will not know me. You will not walk with me. You will not understand me. In fact, I reject you. So when I talk to you about knowing God, on the one hand I want to say it is God's pleasure to make himself known. It's his desire. Oh, he can't wait to reveal himself to us. But you and I take care of our motivation to know God. If my motivation is just a little bit off, then no wonder God hides himself from us. Just as much as Jesus rejected people here and said, you're not going to trump my cause. God the Father will advance my cause. And I'm not going to advance my cause through revolutionary means. I will advance it by the Spirit. Even so, the way that you and I approach God 
and the answers we demand from Him, God checks our motives at all times. Nothing is hidden from Him. And based upon your motive, He's going to say, come on in. Based upon your motive, He's going to say, we'll deal with this later. So look back at your notes. Oswald Chambers says, there on the right-hand side, have I a personal history with Jesus Christ? The one sign of discipleship is intimate connection with Him, a knowledge of Jesus Christ which nothing can shake. He hints here that we need an intimate connection with Him, not just a connection of things He can do for me. So knowing God is, is also an issue of love. It's not just an issue of getting answers. On the right there again, it is a mistake to assume that human faculties and abilities alone can attain to the knowledge of God. Truly knowing God is a matter of God shining Himself into man's being whose constitution is spirit and whose motivation is love. If you're in spirit and motivated by love, God will reveal Himself to you. So here it is, point number one. To know God and to touch His real person and His deepest intentions is not a matter pertaining to the capacity of human thought, however clever, but rather an issue of the constitutional makeup of man's being before God. So what do I mean when I use the phrase, your constitutional makeup? You and I's physical constitution is flesh and blood, is it not? Mm-hmm. But God is looking upon your spiritual constitution. If you're in the spirit, that's how you touch God. We don't touch God with the constitution of our flesh. We touch Him with the constitution of our spirit. Okay, But in our spirit, there is your attitude your motivation, your agenda, in your spirit. And if your constitution in your spirit is pure and for the Lord and meek, that is the condition of your spirit, the elements working in your spirit, God looks upon that constitution. So the sub-bullet there, man's inner constitution must be spiritual in order to really know God. We touched on this in previous times. We cannot know God through the eye and the ear and even your imagination. We touch God through the constitution, the makeup, the workings, the dynamics of our spirit. So important. We must know God in spirit. Okay? However, man cannot know God by the condition of his fallen spirit nor fallen heart. These spiritual organs must be given afresh by God to match the kind of God. Only within this newness can man truly know, love, and enjoy God. So we need a new spirit. Then God goes, ah, I'm going to go ahead and give them a new spirit. Look at the the, uh, verse there, Ezekiel 36. Um, I will also give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will take away the heart of stone out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and my ordinances. You shall keep and do. 
So yeah, to know God, we need an inner constitution that is like a God. So God gives us a new spirit and a new heart. The spirit is the nature and kind of God, and the heart, that's the capacity of feeling. So God gives you a new spirit to contact Him, and a heart to love Him. That inner condition is what shines before Him at all times. When God looks at you, He doesn't look at my mind, my intellect. He doesn't look at my history or my future. God doesn't look at my flesh, my education, my upbringing. God looks upon the condition of your spirit. If that spirit is dead, He says, I'm going to make it alive. And He looks upon the inner condition of your heart. That is the motivation, the feelings within you. And God is like, hey, I'm going to put love in that heart so you can love me. And I'm going to put feeling for me in your heart. And I'm going to make your spirit alive. So once you have an alive spirit, man, you are ready to know God. You're ready to know God. But here's another bullet. Man's inner motivation must be love in order to really know God. Your condition must be of the Spirit, and your motivation must be love. So you see here in John's Gospel, chapter 2, we're in Jerusalem. Our motivation for following Jesus here is not that we want to be with Him and love Him and care for Him and really learn from Him. The bigger issue is, oh, we want to be free from Rome, and we want to be free from the temple priests and all the, the hoopla hoopla about it. So this inner motivation is a serious issue for God. And that's perhaps the reason why not many of us know God. Yes, we're born of the Spirit, so our condition is right on the inside. We have a new Spirit. God gave us a new heart. But instead of leaning into the Spirit and into the heart of love with a proper motivation to just know God, most of us want to know what God knows. Your motivation is a little off. It's as though God just closes the door on us. Not close the door on you for eternity and eternal life, but close the door on revelation. Your inner motivation must be love. Of course, there's so many chapters in the Bible on love verses, but I look at the right-hand column there, John 14, 21. It says, He who has my commandments and keeps them He's the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will manifest myself to him. You see that? Here, he did not manifest himself to the folk in Jerusalem. They never got his heart. They never touched his essence. There were a couple of folk just a stone's throw away from this area. Martha, Mary, Lazarus. There were a few folk like Mary Magdalene. They, they got his heart. The rest of us, we just wanted signs and wonders and miracles. And would you prove yourself? Our motivation was wrong. So, you know the beautiful chapter there in Corinthians, love. We have to have that motivation if you really want to be intimate with God, 
really know God. The motivation of love. Okay, point number two. God in the person of Jesus Christ reveals himself only to the person whose truest intention is to love him wholeheartedly and who walks with him in the lifestyle of spiritual union. Again in John 14, Jesus answered and said to them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make an abode with him. That word abode means dwelling. Another word you can write there is habitation. We will set up shop with that person. We will habitate, cohabitate. We will dwell with that person. Does God only visit you or does God dwell with you? It depends on your motivation before God. If you have a desire to love God and genuinely obey your heart is tender towards God, your spirit is stirred unto the Lord, then you can expect God to just make a dwelling with you, to just to set up shop. That is, have a lifestyle of dwelling with you. But unfortunately, most of us only visit God, and much of the time God only visits us. And this is not as hard to just visit people. He wants to be Emmanuel, God, with you, mm-hmm. just at all times. Mm-hmm. But why don't you experience God with you? My motivation's wrong. Normally, when you approach God, it's not just to love Him and touch Him. It's to get answers. It's for Him to show off a certain way. If your motivation's just a little off, it's as though you'll experience a blockage, okay? Mark Guy Pierce, he says, Let us think of God Himself becoming our song. This is the fullness of and perfection of knowing God. So to know Him that He Himself becomes our delight. So to know Him that praise is sweetest and fullest and freshest and gladdest when we sing of Him. He who has learned this blessed secret carries the golden key of heaven, nay, He hath fetched heaven down to earth and need not envy the angels now. Point number three. There is a marked difference between acknowledging God intellectually and experiencing God in reality. Again, the point I'm trying to make there is many of us, we just want to interact with God in a philosophical, intellectual way. And of course, God is going to reveal understanding to us. But the bigger point is God wants to be so much more real and experiential to us than just a Google. You know what I'm saying? I think we treat God like, like Facebook. We get a little picture and a little tagline, you know, and we interact through the medium of information. And God is just like, hey, I want to be a part of your life. I want to be your life. I want us to be intimate. All of us, 
we've had this experience, God hides himself. And uh, yeah, there are days and times when God just feels so distant. I get that. I've been there. Here's a couple of things that I have noticed in my own life. You would do well to notice some more things in your life. i just give you a few suggestions here in my experience, but we know, one, my motivation has to be spot on. If my motivation's off, there's a blockage. So here's a few things. Why God, and I put it in quotes, hides himself. It's not his burden to hide himself. It's not his agenda. I told you earlier, it is his delight to reveal himself. But if you and I come with wrong motives and agendas, there's going to be a blockage. So number one, God hides himself from man because of sin. And I gave you uh, quite a few biblical references there. You see over and over and over again, when you and I choose to walk in sin, obviously my motivation is wrong. God is still going to love us if we sin. Come on. None of us are sinless. We've got to get to that stage where the Lord deals with lots of issues in us. We get over some of these things and get freed from some of these things. But if there's consistent, persistent, intentional sin in you and I's life, there's going to be a little feeling of distance. So sin. Number two, God hides himself from man because of man's superiority complex so when you and I have a superiority complex been there done that I've read that story I've already heard a sermon on that when you act in your own wisdom your own understanding your own experience your own cleverness your own wit your own interpretation your own observation like all of those things contribute to you and I kind of living like this you know you have that kind of an attitude, you're not going to get anything from God, period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I cannot stress this enough that you and I have to intentionally humble ourselves before God. I'm, of course, I know I'm God's son. I'm seated in the heavenlies. But I still choose to be slave-like. That is, I choose to believe God as my master. I don't boss him around. He is Lord. You have such an attitude, man. Grace is extended to you, and through that grace, revelation, anything you need. Number three, God hides himself because man rejects God's supply. And then I write it out for you, just a few things. God's supply is Jesus Christ. God's supply is the Holy Spirit. God's supply is the scripture, and God's supply is creation. And then I can add to that, God's supply is the body of Christ. He's given us the person of Christ. And when you reject the work of the cross and you reject that supply, I mean, you're going to find blockage in your life. God's given us the Holy Spirit. If we grieve the Spirit and we block the Spirit and our motivation is not pure towards the Lord, we reject His supply. What does God supply? The Spirit. Mm-hmm. He who bountifully, supply. Philippians 1.19, bountifully supplies the Spirit. This is the supply of God. Um, the Scripture. Oh my goodness. 
If you've got a copy of the Bible, any copy, read it. It's the supply of God. You take the supply, you're going to know God. You humbly and tenderly, and we'll talk about that in the next session, take the Word, the implanted Word, you receive it meekly. Whoa! This is the supply of God. You'll be nourished by it. You'll be wisened by it. Creation. Creation is the supply of God. I personally don't get the biggest, heaviest revelations from creation. Because in my experience, creation does testify for the Lord. It speaks for the Lord. It reveals God. And it is the supply of God, no doubt. But it's, it's very minuscule. You can add here the supply of the body of Christ, the many-membered body of Jesus. Everybody supplies something of God to us. You humbly, meekly can receive from one another. You will know God. God hides Himself from us because man refuses to exercise his spirit. This inner condition we call a slumbering spirit, a snoozing spirit, a snoring spirit. If your spirit is snoozing most of the day, God's going to be distant. Although He's present, He will not be experienced. So the key to experiencing God is not music. I'm telling you, it's not creation. The key to experiencing God is, is nothing. If your spirit is snoozing, but everything does shout beautifully and confirms beautifully, if your own spirit is engaged, alive, awake, stirred. In my estimation, this is the biggest deliverance all of us need. is a slumbering spirit deliverance. A snoozing, checked out spirit. See, God has given you a new spirit, right? He's given you a new heart. But if your spirit is shut down, your heart is not going to pump love towards God. The spirit is the breath that makes this heart pump. You with me? It's like you cannot be in love with God and exercise love in the right motivation if your spirit is just snoring. So what is an engaged spirit? It's very hard to describe what that looks like, except you're awake. Ephesians gives us a little bit of a hint as to a stirred, engaged spirit. I want you to notice verse 17 and onwards. This therefore I say and I testify in the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles also walk in the vanity of their mind. Your nice mind has got to begin to be renewed and have a target. You know, set your mind on the spirit. It's not a very mystical thing. It's a very intentional thing. Mind is the spirit. When you and I were pagans, we just walked in the vanity of our mind. In other words, our mind had no purpose, no coherence. Our mind was just all over the place. Now we're minding God a lot more than we used to. It's a sign that we're in the Spirit. Come on. Verse 18. You know, when we were Gentiles, we were darkened in our understanding. Oh, and we were alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance which is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Notice we were past feeling. Our heart had no tenderness in it, no feeling. 
And we were given over to lasciviousness, to work all uncleanness in greediness. That's a description of you and I before Jesus. But now we met Jesus and we were enlivened, made alive. Old English word, we were animated. We were given life. And notice we were given a heart with feeling to love God. Verse 20 says, but you did not so learn Christ. In other words, all of those foregoing things, Christ is other than that. We should have a different experience. It says, if indeed you've heard him and have been taught in him as the reality is in Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful verse? We're being taught by Jesus because he is the reality. So you notice in verse 20, we're learning from Christ. We're learning Christ. He's our rabbi. He's teaching us. And in verse 21, we hear him. We're being taught by him. And he gives us the reality of the spiritual life. He is the Christian life, and He's it in us. Now, verse 22 shows how we partner with this learning. you got to partner. you got to exercise yourself. And Paul puts it this way. He says that you put off just as much as you take your clothes off at night and you put it aside. Paul says, take off. As regards your former manner of life, take off the old man which is being corrupted according to the lusts of deceit. Y'all, that's an intentional thing we've got to do. We put off our clothes at night and we put on our clothes in the morning. In the spirit, you put off. This is an engaged spirit. We exercise our spirit by rejecting things and accepting things. We take stuff off, we put stuff on. He says in verse 23, And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man. In verse 22, we put off the old man. Do you see that? In verse 24, we put on the new man, which was created according to God. Y'all, that is powerful. Your new man is created according to God in righteousness and holiness and reality. So we're done with shadows. We're putting on God in reality. Notice again verse 25. Therefore, having put off the lie, we put off, we put on. So there's just a little glimpse of what it means to exercise your spirit, train your mind, discipline your body. Okay, back on your notes. Number five, why God hides himself. That is why we experience distance, separation. God hides himself from man to sift man's motives. There are times when God is just going to disappear from your life seemingly. Mm -hmm. He's going to withdraw feeling and goose pimples and miracles and breakthroughs to see if you're in love with all of that or just in love with Him. Mm-hmm. There's an aspect of God called jealousy. I'm still learning what, what that really means. I don't, I don't have a rap on that. But um, it appears to me that if you and I in our motives just changes a little bit, 
it's like we provoke the jealousy of God. I walked with God for many, many years just because of the feeling. I walked with God because of the maybe the intellectual knowledge that you gain. And you fall in love with all these things around God. And at times, I think we're all very guilty of that. There's times when God just for a minute says, you know what? I'm not going to give that guy breakthrough in that area today to see if he's in love with a breakthrough and in love with the fact that everybody like, whoa, God is like so close to you. If he loves the acclamation of the praises of man because of all the great breakthroughs. And I'm just going to withhold it a little bit and see if that man can get in touch with his real motives again. So there's something in God that sifts us. And He does it at different times and in different ways. He just purposefully offends. Jesus did this in the scriptures over and over and over again. He was so intentional to just do something a little bit different just to see where you and I's motives are. And I think as soon as you and I can just that time say oh Lord if I have been wrong internally in this way or that way I ask forgiveness and Lord search my heart and know me see if there's any wicked way within me <laughs>